take your copies of the scriptures, please, and turn to Luke chapter 4. All right, I'll be reading Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now last Sunday afternoon, having completed our study of the life of Abraham, we began a study of the scriptural narratives of the temptation of Jesus Christ, looking for the lessons that God has for his people in this record of Christ's power over the flesh, over sin and Satan. We looked at two lessons implied in the record of the temptation of our Lord. First, we looked at the providential necessity of temptation. We noted that God has decreed that from time to time, believers will be brought through the testing of temptation appearing in the history of their lives. And second, we looked at what we learn from the temptation of Jesus in terms of the timing of temptation. We noted that while temptation may come at any time, in the temptation of Christ, we learn that temptation may likely come when we are committed to the work of God. Now today, as we move forward in this study, I want to look at some additional lessons for us as we face temptation. When God, in his holy and wise counsel, providentially brings us face to face with temptation, we need to be prepared. This first lesson that I want to look at today, really it will absorb all of our attention today, the next lesson perhaps is best to say, is found in the observation that temptation comes with cost. It comes in the company of cost. It does not gently fall on the believer. It falls with the weight of loss or pain or grief or injury. It may fall with common discomfort or in the extreme, even with death as its cost, but it will come upon us with cost. You can bet on it. It has teeth, which is what makes the temptation so difficult. We'll work on that lesson together this afternoon, and the next week we need to look at a second lesson, another lesson proceeding from that idea of cost and temptation. Next week's lesson will be this. Since the temptation falls upon us with cost, The temptation really does test us. It tests our nature and our character. And we'll look at that testing from two perspectives. 
the testing of endurance and the testing of faith. But today we're looking at the idea that lesson that temptation comes with cost. Now in our text, we learn that the temptation of our Lord in one sense began immediately. And in another sense, it arrived later over this 40-day period. Notice that immediately our Lord experiences the testing of temptation in terms of cost as soon as the Spirit of God leads him, or as Mark puts it, drives him. Here then is the first indication of cost to the believer. Cost that gives the temptation its teeth. Temptation is a test driven by cost that begins in a context of submission to the leadership of the Spirit of God. We learn this immediately in verses 1 and 2. Consider, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Aware of the leadership of the Spirit of God and in submission to his driving authority, our Lord willingly submits to this providence in his life. He's taken away from his disciples, from his kin. He's isolated and made to be alone. He must go into wild lands, uninhabited and without the comforts of civilization. Unprepared for 40 days of exposure and hunger, his vital ministry is seemingly immediately interrupted. Now my question to you is what does it cost Jesus to submit to the will of the Spirit of God? It costs him his comforts, his health, safety, and companionship. His peace of mind and the security of his soul is challenged. He has to face that challenge as Satan engages in the testing of our Lord. All of that begins with submission to the declared will of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God had determined to lead and drive Jesus into the wilderness. He doesn't kick against the goads, but we seem to get the impression from the text that he quickly and fully, we would say diligently, complies. Now here we find evidence of the first lesson that we're looking at today. The beginning of temptation comes with a challenge to the leadership of the Spirit of God in our lives. It really wasn't knowledge of God that was challenged when our Lord began to face his, attempt, his temptation, or faith in the presence of God. Both of those things seem apparent, and, that, that, and they seem to be very secure in our Lord as we look at the narrative. I think they were challenged. Immediately, it's obedience that's challenged, though. Obedience to the authority of God that's tested. And it's tested throughout this challenge. It's tested, yet without sin. Now, we don't read that our Lord hesitated in these circumstances, that he questioned the leadership of the Spirit, the wisdom of the Spirit, or that he resisted the Spirit of God's authority in any way. Now, considering these things, I have two main points of application for us to take to heart. First, let's note that temptation always begins with a testing of our willingness to submit to the leadership and the authority of God. It has always been this way from the very first temptation of mankind in the Garden of Eden. The serpent approached Eve 
insinuating a problem with God's authority. First, he challenges the clarity and the certainty of God's expressed authority. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the, uh, any tree in the garden? Are you really sure that's what he said? Now, perhaps there's another interpretation Satan implies. Perhaps what you think is so clear is actually quite obscure. Perhaps you need help understanding what God, that God means something very different from what he says. Brethren, this is Satan reaching into Eve's heart and beginning to tug at her sense of loss of independence, loss of autonomy. He's making her feel the cost of submission to God. It's very subtle at first. At first, it's just questioning the clarity and the certainty of what God has commanded. Maybe you're meant to have greater independence in interpreting, greater freedom in interpolating the authority of God as expressed in his word. You see, that's the beginning of the temptation to sin against the authority of God. You're losing your independence and autonomy. Don't you see that? Look what it's costing you. And it's a lie. It's actually a lie. To insinuate that any real independence and autonomy of the creature exists is a lie and an absurdity to begin with. But Satan goes there anyway because he knows that he can make Eve feel the pain of that cost. The cost of submission is the denial of the lie of autonomy. Autonomy. That's going to cost her something. And notice that Satan is not content to merely insinuate that there's uncertainty, that there's lack of clarity in the authority of God as expressed in his words. The tempter goes on to deny the reliability and the veracity of God's word. Uh, How accurate and how reliable is God's word anyway? This is really what he's asking. Maybe you shouldn't trust it to rule you since it's uncertain in terms of truthfulness. You will not surely die. Genesis 3, 4. The lie is more acceptable than the truth to the fallen woman Eve. She's deceived because she wants to be. Being deceived is more pleasant than facing the truth, the cost of the truth. To face the truth would mean that God is right, his authority is just, and then where are we? Now we've done violence to our own supposed authority, our ability and authority to weigh and measure truth and value and judge God. If I simply, faithfully, obediently submit, it will cost me my independent judgment of God. I don't want to hear Paul say, indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Now, finally, Satan proceeds from denying the truthfulness of God's authority as expressed in his word. He encourages Eve next to evaluate and judge God, tempting her to lift herself up into a place of false authority. Then he deals the death blow in the temptation. He denies the sufficiency of God's authority expressed and applied to mankind. It's not enough to obey God, he insinuated. You'll never get what's best if you obey God. That's Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You need to take control of providing for yourself. You need to evaluate what's best for you and exercise your power to seize it. 
God won't provide it. So be sufficient for yourself. And now Eve has been propelled into autarky. Brethren, this is how the testing of temptation first appears when it arrives at its most seminal level. Be prepared for it by noting that the earliest cost that will be presented to you, possibly painfully presented, is a loss of self-determination. You will be required to submit to the Spirit of God. Now as a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you. In Romans 8, 16, Paul tells us, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Children must obey their Father. And the Spirit of God bearing witness to you of your adoption as sons and daughters, he will simultaneously impress the Word of God upon your heart, reminding and convicting you to obey your Father. The temptation challenges that conviction to submit. That's what I'm saying. Be aware of that. Know that within yourself is a monstrous rebel. Within you are the seeds of rebellion which can sprout quickly under the watering of temptation. Because of your fallen nature, you possess the same weakness and folly that your ancient parents, Adam and Eve, once expressed in a moment of temptation. You too can resent and rebel against God's authority. And when you sin, that's what you do. In the case of Christ, we see that he was unaffected by that weakness and folly. Our Lord was possessed of no such evil nature when it came time to follow the driving leadership of the Spirit. He quickly and faithfully submits. Consider that Christ had authority. He had real authority, divine authority, and yet he willingly submitted to the Spirit. The apparent cost of that early submission had no power over our Lord to wrest control from the Spirit or even question or doubt the leadership of the Father expressed in the oversight of the Spirit. I want to point that out to you as a first thought of application. Be prepared for that early form of cost. As a second thought of application, or rather a practical extension of what we've just talked about, let's note where our particular sins are likely to appear when we first face the testing of temptation. I'll explain what I mean by that. Since Satan and our natural desire left to itself is to rebel and pursue our own course, when you discover that a temptation has first arrived, examine examine your earliest response. Are you already sinning against God in terms of rebelling against his leadership? Have you already taken that first step of rebellion? Are you being led by the Spirit of God in spite of clear cost? Cost like comfort, material safety, earthly peace and security. Are you being led by the Spirit of God in spite of that apparent cost? Or are you giving those things up already? Are you, rather, giving those things up already in order to joyfully submit to the authority of the Spirit of God declared in the Word. What I'm asking is, where's your heart at the beginning of the test? Are you already setting thresholds of obedience? This is the question. Well, I'll obey to this point of cost right here, down here. 
but if the cost goes that high, I'll change my mind and I'll do things differently. And by differently, we mean in violation of the Word of God, in disobedience to the Word of God, in order to avoid the higher threshold of loss that we've set for ourselves. Is that where you are at the beginning of temptation? This is worthy of our examination. Have you already given ultimate authority to yourself at the beginning of the temptation? Is your present obedience really a sham? Is it partial obedience, mere outward conformity without any real heart obedience? Check yourself. Do it early before the temptation becomes too fiery for you to focus sufficiently and see clearly before the distraction of cost becomes too great. Consider also that obedience with great cost is built upon the practice of obedience when the cost is less. Maybe I should say it this way. Consider that success in obedience when there's great cost is built upon the practice of obedience when the cost is little. Build a habit of obedience while the cost is fairly minimal. Do that as your regular exercise. This is Christ's example. When he was first sent by the Spirit into the wilderness, he was healthy and well-fed and feeling good. That's when he obeyed, when the cost was minimal. It's foolish to suppose that you can compromise morally with the small tests and then expect that somehow you'll rise to the occasion when tempted in such a way that obedience costs you more dearly. Christ began to successfully navigate this temptation with easier obedience. It was easier to obey the Spirit of God, especially when being driven at the beginning. But how helpful that he began this campaign of war with sin, war with the flesh and Satan, by making sure that his initial foray into that enemy territory started with good tactics and proper military discipline when he was fresh, when he was strong. This is a good soldier that we see on display in our Lord. He apparently was always under discipline to the Spirit of God. So it was his habit and his natural action. There was no required sudden change of lifestyle or attitude now that he's faced with a more severe trial. He had already established a habit of perfect obedience well before this encounter with Satan. Now there's another lesson for us in that. The habit of obedience grows in us as a capacity of obedience. Build that capacity now during peacetime. That's what I'm saying. A soldier practices many hours of maneuvers. He builds skills in military disciplines. He does that during peacetime. Following the chain of command during peacetime builds skill and tactics and military prowess in the good soldier. Thus, when he finds himself suddenly plunged into the chaos and the terror of real battle, the obedient discipline that he's practiced is maintained in its integrity and it serves at that time to preserve his life by preserving his order and his discipline in battle. Make that your goal as a good soldier of the cross. Build that obedient discipline in yourself now well ahead of the greater cost that you will feel when more severely tempted and tested. 
Now a second thought for us regarding this cost of temptation. Understand that the cost of temptation tests us with material pain and loss. We've been talking about the cost of temptation from the perspective of the cost of our self-determination. My independence. That sense of loss of independence is part of the test. Obedience to God in the face of temptation to sin does violence to our supposed autonomy. And that can feel like a palpable cost, I grant you. Now, having said that, let's not forget the more mundane costs, the common costs of temptation. Temptation comes with material pain and loss. And I'm using the terms pain and loss as broadly as possible. In the case of Christ's temptation, we've already mentioned some of these painful losses. He lost security. With the mere threat of this loss, many Christians fall to temptation. The mere threat of loss of security will bring many Christians to fall. Here they fail the test of righteousness. As soon as comfort is threatened or safety is threatened, they fall to compromise. I may lose my job, they say. I may lose my house. I can lose my wealth. The sin of worry, what we learn is that the sin of worry and anxiety feeds our willingness to compromise when we face the loss of security. Did you hear what I just said, brethren? This is so key. I'll build on this thought. Listen, if you worry about the common material earthly things that support life, money, clothing, home, employment, if you worry about the loss of those things or not having enough of those things, then be aware you are setting yourself up to be the first casualty of temptation. You're making yourself susceptible to Satan's devices to tempt you to sin against God. How so? How so? Because that anxiety and worry of material things, it elevates them in your mind and your evaluation to a point and in your mind, in your heart, you can't live without these things. You can't exist without these things. You reverse in your mind the scriptural teaching. You make your daily bread more necessary to your life than the Word of God. In your worry and anxiety, you risk a great fall into sin when temptation arrives because you've made material security and comforts your God. The possession of these things possesses your mind and your heart. Your worry and anxiety tells you that money and home and income have an importance in life that if God were to require them of you at the cost of obedience to Him, you would likely not choose obedience to Him. This is why worry and anxiety is such a pernicious sin. More than we recognize, brethren, it makes you unfit to be a soldier unprepared to face the enemy, especially the enemy within. Notice in our Lord the absolute absence of worry. Foxes had holes, birds had nests, but our Lord had no place to lay his head, and it really didn't seem to matter to him all that much, as long as he did the will of his Father. How worried would you be, consider, how worried would Tom Smith be, I have to ask myself, if I were driven into the wilderness to be slowly starved for 40 days? Think about that, brethren. That's stripping all the veneer off the narrative, isn't it? 
Yet in the case of our Lord, we're merely told in verse 2, he ate nothing during those days. That's all it says. And when they were ended, he was hungry. That's all it says. Now here's what's remarkable about that statement. This was a choice. It does not say that he was prevented from eating during the 40 days. Nor does the test say that he was unable to eat during that 40 days. This was the glorious Son of Man of Daniel's vision, in whose presence Daniel could not even stand upright. This was the Son of God, the very brightness of the Father's glory. He was able to have bread whenever he wanted it. He chose not to eat that bread because it had been made manifestly clear to our Lord what was the will of the Father in this matter at this moment. He so fully submitted to the leading of the Holy Spirit that even when he was hungry, starving, brethren, emaciated. He was a man. Forty days. Emaciated. He still refused himself bread, trusting fully in complete, obedient confidence in the will of God for him. No worry. No anxiety. Even as he submitted to starvation. Brethren, this is facing real cost. Cost unlike anything I am aware that any of us have faced. Starvation? Yet here we see our Lord overcoming the temptation without a sense of that, that real hook in the temptation to make bread. It doesn't seem like there was much sharpness to that hook for him. In verses 3 through 4, we read of Satan's hook. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. No worry, no hook. Watch out for covetousness, discontent, worry, anxiety, fear of loss. Brethren, these things all make you unfit to face the tempter. They make the refining of your faith a long and painful process full of sorrow. That's the lie. Therein we find the lie that we tell ourselves. If I just give in and choose sin, I'll keep my comforts. I'll avoid sorrow and loss. This is the lie we tell ourselves. It's the lie that Satan tells us. It's a lie driven by a sinful desperation to maintain our material comforts. Watch out for that material idolatry in your heart. You'll know it's there if you find that you are a worrier. Chronic worry is evidence of idolatry of the heart. Consider also that what we idolize and what we worry over, the variety of that is legion. You may worry over having a wife or a husband. You may be anxious about loneliness. You may may fear the loss of your spouse. You may fret over your health. Your anxiety may not even be clearly defined. It can exist as a general fear of the future that's irrational. Whatever the case, recognize that your fear of loss, which is what your worry is, that fear has the power to displace the fear of God. And once that fear of God is displaced, wisdom is displaced, and you will fall to the folly of temptation. Thomas Watson said that Satan loves to fish in the troubled waters of a discontented heart. 
Now, what I'm suggesting to you, brethren, is to avoid his success fishing in your heart by allowing him no opportunity. He waits for opportunity. This is the final thought I would leave with you. Listen very carefully. Satan looks for the moment when your desire will trump obedience to God. This is the real context of temptation. It's like a laboratory. Let me give you an example. It's like a laboratory. Temptation is like a laboratory that God providentially sets up to test his people. We talked about this briefly last week. The lab conditions are established by the decree of God. Satan's devices and our own sinful desires are in the lab environment affecting the outcome of the test. God's righteous expectation is not that we sin. Therefore, he does not tempt us to sin. We ought not say that. Rather, he has set up this laboratory of life and this moment of experiment so that we will do right in the face of the devices of Satan and the desires of our flesh. This was what God's moral expectation of Adam and Eve was in the garden when he told them that they were not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He was not tempting them to sin, but rather to do what was right. Now, this is not true of Satan, nor of our own fallen sinful passions. In the laboratory of life, in the providential experiment that God brings us to test us from time to time, Satan and our fallen flesh tempts us to sin. Now, this is evil. Hence the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, in the context of this analogy of the laboratory and this periodic experiment, now I want you to consider the very last thing that we read in the narrative of temptation. It's these words. He, that is Satan, departed from him until an opportune time. You see, Satan is a watchful, prowling enemy. He looks for the opportune time, the time when the potential cost of consistent obedience will potentially trump submission to God. That's what he watches for. That's what you have to watch for. You must watch for those times in your life where you feel the weight of loss, the potential pain beginning to creep in, the cost of faithful obedience to God. The opportune time came again for our Lord, brethren. I think it came again in the Garden of Gethsemane, for instance. Listen to the events of Matthew 26, 36 through 44. Here's an example of the opportune time. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Who do you suppose our Lord is talking about there? Only Peter? That has no application to our Lord and what he's experiencing, what's on his mind in this moment. He was not a man. 
Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Here was the opportune time. The cost was high. Jesus was to be physically assaulted, beaten, humiliated, and mortally wounded. Infinitely greater than that cost was bearing the sins of his people, bearing the wrath of God, and receiving the rejection of the Father. This text, it tells us that Jesus prayed the same words three times. What words? Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not as I will, but as you will. You hear the cost? The sense of cost? The cost of obedience was high beyond our ability to reckon here. Here was the opportune time for Satan to entice our Lord, for Christ to fail the test of obedience. But he did not. He could not. Now there's no mention of Satan present in the Garden of Gethsemane, so I assume he was not present. Nevertheless, when I read of our Lord's agony in this passage, compared to the account of the temptation, I can't help but think that this was another probably more powerful moment of temptation and testing, which our Lord endured and gloriously overcame through obedience. And again, again, brethren, this opportune time appeared. At the very cross when he was tempted with words of mockery. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Doesn't that echo what Satan did that we read from Luke 4? It echoes it. You can hear the same voice. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. These words are found in Matthew chapter 27. Even one of the thieves crucified with him engaged in the temptation of this moment. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself in us. He said that in Luke 23, 39. The opportune time. Brethren, watch out for the opportune time. The time when Satan gleefully discovers that you are providentially in pain or sorrow. These are the times when because of the painful cost of obedience, we are more likely to simply follow our nature, our fallen nature, and refuse to receive more pain or more loss. It's at these times that Satan offers, or seems to offer, escape from greater pain or greater loss. It's a false offer. Consider what might have been had Christ refused the culmination of his anointment and come down from the cross. Darkness, judgment, sudden terror, destruction, separation from God for eternity. Brethren, that's horror. Those are things too dark to comprehend. The opportune time for Satan is an opportunity to destroy you, not to spare you. So the escape he seems to offer in that moment is false. He offers just the opposite. Keep that in mind. When you find that Satan has discovered you at the opportune time for him, when you are afraid of loss and your faith seems weak and your sanctified determination to obey God feels like it's wavering in the face of pain and loss, 
then the cost of obedience seems too high. When that happens, remember that this is Satan's opportune time, not yours. This is his moment to lie to you and cheat you. This is the time that your own heart will deceive you and betray you. This is their time, not yours, believer. They have come with the purpose of your hurt and the injury of your soul. And yes, the material cost of the moment, if you obey God, it may be very high. But Satan's cost is beyond your reckoning. It's greater sorrow, pain, shame, and loss. Don't be deceived. In that moment, look to Christ. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. He was never deceived by Satan during these temptations. In these opportune times, he was never tricked. He knew the opportune time for the tempter when he saw it, when he himself was immersed in it. He did not fail to obey and choose the pain if that's what obedience required. And look what he accomplished through obedience. For you, the salvation of your soul, reconciliation to God, forgiveness of sin, restoration of the image of God, joy and peace and new life to eternity. Look what he accomplished for himself. A kingdom where righteousness dwells, himself upon the throne, a city that has foundations where he rules and reigns over his people to his glory for eternity. He accomplished the destruction of death and hell and he triumphed over Satan, spoiling Satan's kingdom. All of that was accomplished when Christ was tempted and tested and he triumphantly overcame and even submitted to death, even the death of the cross. Philippians 2, 8 through 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This, this brethren, is the outcome of courage under fire from a true fighter. This is the reward of obedience which our Lord obtained when tempted and tried. Let that be an encouragement to you in the hour of Satan's opportune time with you. Flee to this Jesus who is both Lord and Savior. He always overcame this adversary. He has defeated sin and death and the devil. Therefore, you may be assured that he is able to help you in the temptation of Satan's opportune time. He can work in you to make you like himself a diligent and obedient soldier of the cross. The key to unlock your successful obedience, even painful and costly obedience, the key to unlock your successful obedience in the temptation of Satan's opportune time is with Jesus Christ. Now that's my last exhortation to us all as we close. Prayerfully flee to Christ with all diligence, with speed and determination and all hope, knowing that it is with him alone that you will find success when facing the cost of Satan's opportune time. Finish with the words of Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen.